Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm your host, John Good, and this is your Threat Intel Briefing for April 2nd, 2023 through April 8th, 2023. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way YouTube will keep pushing out new content to you. And then if you're listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe on there and leave us a review. Let us know if you enjoy the show, if you want to hear about other things. And I definitely take a look at those and use those to help improve the show. Also, check out the description because there is a link to the show notes where you can check out additional articles that we didn't cover as well as the articles that we did cover a little bit more in depth. Also, make sure to head on over to TikTok. If you're on TikTok, I finally created a TikTok account. It is John Good Cyber, so you can, uh, you can follow on there as well and check out some of the content that we're going to start putting on there uh, also. So without any further delay, we're going to go ahead and jump into the first article here. So new research highlights increased security risk posed by remote working and BYOD. State of remote work report shows that 32% of remote workers use apps or software for work that they're not approved for by IT. Organizations are more vulnerable as the attack surface has left the building. Key findings include the modern office no longer exists within the traditional security perimeter. In 2020, 61% of businesses in the U.S. migrated their workloads to the cloud triggered by the global pandemic and that the need to quickly support remote work. While providing employees with remote access to corporate data in the cloud provides flexibility and potential boost to productivity, this coupled with BYOD can also increase an organization's exposure to risk. The other key finding was remote employees less likely to follow data security best practices. 90% of access corporate networks from areas other than their home with an average of five different locations. This introduces security risks as company data could be exposed across multiple networks not monitored by IT. 46% have saved a work file onto their personal device instead of their employer's network drive. Personal device OSs are far more likely to be out of date, which means that they're not protected against the latest security vulnerability exploits and malware. Nearly one in three remote employees work more than 20 hours per week on their personal tablet or smartphone device. Personal devices often have dozens of unsanctioned apps that threat actors use as avenues for their phishing attacks. 45% use the same password for work and personal accounts for using passwords expo uh, exposes a user's account to cyber criminals, which increases the risk of uh, identity theft as well as sensitive data theft from their organization. Yeah, so we know that the use of BYOD, which is bring your own device, basically the idea that you as an employee can use your own personal device for your work, we know that increases the overall exposure uh, of an organization to increased risk, right? That's just, that's how it is. Think about your personal devices at home. There is a great chance that you do not keep those as secure as your work computers, right? You know, sometimes you do. It depends on who you are and how vigilant you are. But most people do not, uh, are not as on top of it on their personal devices, even if they work in the tech field, right? And that means 
Are you installing the latest patches when they come out? Are you delaying it, right? Typically, you're not forced to install the latest patches on your home devices or update your antivirus definitions. In an organization, that's part of the overall control environment and the atmosphere of things that we have to do for compliance frameworks or whatever, right? And so, yeah, I mean, that is definitely a serious concern. Employees, uh, they travel to other locations, right? Your remote workforce, maybe you go on a trip and maybe you're not always working from your home office or your home location, right? When you go to a physical office, so you have a plant site that you have to go into, you're working at least in a secured area, even if you're moving throughout the building, right? Maybe you have a guard at the front of like the actual gate to get into the building. Maybe it's just a receptionist or a security guard at the front lobby of your building, but that area is relatively secured compared to somewhere else, right? So you can move around. If you're an employee, maybe you just go to one hotel room and then you go to another hotel room and you're just bouncing around. Maybe you're working in the normal kind of lobby area, reception area of the hotel or of some Starbucks or some kind of business like that, right? And so this remote state, it just increases the amount of risk. So, you know, what are things that you can do to actually improve that capability if your organization is going to allow that? Well, things like privacy screen monitors, which are basically just this kind of shield or film layer that can be inserted over a screen that kind of obscures the picture so you can't see it if you're coming in from the side angle, right? We know about that with like screen protectors on phones, but they also make it for computers. And it's not like that stick on kind, it's just like an insert that you put on. You can go buy those on Amazon, right? That's a good step using things like VPNs where that connection is encrypted all the way, especially on that work computer, right? Like that's really important. What about if somebody's able to use their, their personal computer and connect into the enterprise environment? What kind of controls are in place there? Are you using things like browser-based VPNs? Are you just allowing that, that employee to actually directly connect in? So to actually, for instance, with, uh, with a Windows computer, are they just able to mount a work, uh, work share drive, right? How does that whole interaction work? All of that stuff matters, right? If you can save directly a work file onto your computer, like that's a bad, bad thing, right? Like that's not good. There should always be some kind of protection. And again, sandboxing is a great way to do that. You have uh, applications and services like Citrix, right? Where it creates a virtual environment where you basically VPN into it, you log into it, and then that sandboxes that whole environment so then you can remote into your computer, right? Really cool technology. And just one example of something that you can use to protect your data, right? So we've got to get better with remote employees for sure. I think that's something that is going to improve over time, right? Uh, traditionally, you know, remote working was not as prevalent. It was not as common as it is becoming today. We're seeing a lot of companies go back to forcing people to come into their actual business locations. You know, so we're still kind of figuring out how things are gonna evolve over time. But, you know, I think a lot of companies are going to be changed because of what's happened in the last couple of years. 
And not every company is, even if they're forcing people to go back, not every company is going to uh, go that way completely, right? Either hybrid workforces, or they're going to try to force people back and learn that, well, maybe it really was better to have people remote, right? Or maybe they're gonna have a better idea of who can be remote and who needs to come into the office, right? That's, that's a huge discussion and a debate right now among a lot of companies. So it'll be really interesting to just see how this kind of plays out in the next really five to 10 years, right? Obviously longer than that, things will probably be way different, right? But it will be interesting to kind of see how things play out, right? I think people still naturally, a lot of times like to have interactions with other people. But again, it comes down to the kind of position, what that company does, and just the overall culture. Next article, Microsoft OneNote starts blocking dangerous file extensions. Microsoft has announced improved protections for OneNote users with automatic blocking of embedded files with extensions that are considered dangerous. Just as other Office applications, OneNote has been abused from malware delivery, especially since OneNote documents allow attackers to attach files that would be executed with few warnings to the user. Specifically, users were informed that when opening a OneNote attachment, could, uh, specifically, users were informed that opening a OneNote attachment could be harmful, but were provided with the option to dismiss the warning and open the embedded file immediately. After security researchers warned last year that the mark of the web MOTW protection was not applied to OneNote documents and their attachments, the abuse of OneNote in malicious campaigns surged. To open an attachment marked as potentially dangerous, OneNote users would need to save the file to their device and open it from there, allowing security applications running on the device to detect any malicious code in the attachment. According to Microsoft, OneNote will block by default the same extensions that Word, Excel, Outlook, and PowerPoint block. However, Microsoft 365 administrators can set policies to block additional file types or to allow specific file types to be opened. So we've talked about that on the show before, that OneNote was being abused by attackers, attaching files, attaching images that look like certain things and all these kinds of th these uh, uh, tactics, right? And so, you know, pretty interesting attack vector and kind of the story with attackers, right? Once they find something that works that has not been blocked previously, they'll just start abusing it as much as they can. And it's really a game of speed, right? Now, if you don't know what Mark of the Web is, basically it's this idea, this, uh, it's basically a feature, right? A labeling system, if you will, within Microsoft that if you, uh, for instance, in Windows, if you download a file, then it's going to add this kind of mark, this mark of the web, this tag, and it's going to distinguish that that file was downloaded from the web, right? And so, you know, we, we've definitely started to see attackers exploit that. And we've covered that on this show before, right? We, we've talked about that attack vector, but nonetheless, pretty interesting. And I think especially with OneNote, kind of the more that it is leveraged, the more that it's used by employees, the more that, you know, it's becoming an attack that they're going after, right? If your organization doesn't use OneNote or employees didn't use OneNote, then why would you go after it? So maybe that's a, a positive thing for Microsoft, right? Showing that more employees are using OneNote to keep their notes, right? It's an awesome application, but just like anything, 
when it's awesome and people use it, attackers are going to go after it, right? Like they're going to leverage that for their attacks. And they're going to go after the people that are not savvy, right? Those are the, or the, the administrators or something like that that are not going to be paying attention and they're just going to click on the attachment. They're going to open the file. They're going to do whatever, right? Open the malicious OneNote notebook. So, but pretty interesting. Next article, Genesis Market, one of the world's largest platforms for cyber fraud seized by police. Genesis Market was seized on Tuesday in an FBI-led operation involving more than a dozen international partners, scuttling one of the most significant online criminal platforms. Genesis, which functioned as a one-stop shop for criminals, both selling stolen credentials and the tools to weaponize that data, has been linked to millions of financially motivated cyber incidents globally from fraud through... uh, from fraud through to ransomware attacks. Splash page, re- splash page revealing that takedown titled Operation Cookie Monster has now been replaced the log has now replaced the login pages of Genesis Markets web websites. The organization maintains sites on the dark web and regular web. Unlike its competitors, Genesis Market provided criminals access to bots or browser fingerprints that allowed them to impersonate victim web browsers, putting IP addresses session cookies, operating system information, and plugins. So real quick, if you don't know what dark, the dark web is, basically the dark web is this anonymized internet, right? Like it's a, a anonymized internet experience. And you have to connect into something called Tor, which is a network. And that basically it connects you through different proxy servers. And so it will hide your location, your IP, all that kind of stuff, right? Like that's, that's basically the idea. And so a lot of these websites that are on there, you can only access once you're connected to the Tor network or the dark web, right? And so if I was to just try to go right now to one of these web addresses, because they're still like addresses, right? Domain names, if you will. If I was to try to go to that, or you were to try to go to that right now on just your normal web browser, you're not going to be able to access it. It's going to say it's not found, or it's going to redirect you to you know, a, a provider, like a GoDaddy or something like that, and you're not going to see it. Then when you connect to the Tor, uh, Tor network, and then try to go to that domain name, it's going to come up, right? That's the idea. And so a lot of the, these marketplaces exist on there to sell things that are illegal. Uh, there's also another statement in here. These fingerprints meant the criminals could access subscription platforms such as Netflix and Amazon, those online banking services without trigger, triggering security warnings. What's Joe doing logging in from India is a quote on there, as Leslie said. Users could even bypass multi-factor authentication. So think about this. If you're logging into your uh, website or an account or something like that, and it's a suspicious location, somewhere where you've never logged into maybe before, right? Another country completely. And typically you get some kind of alert, right? And it says, do you approve this? Was this you? And so this is kind of trying to bypass that or make it less suspicious that an attacker is trying to leverage some of these credentials that they bought on the dark web. So that's kind of the idea. But with these platforms, these marketplaces, We've seen law enforcement take down so many of these, right? Typically what happens is we don't see uh, it being as known right away. A lot of times behind the scenes, 
law enforcement will go in and they'll, you know, they'll hit all these owners, the operators, all at the same time. They'll arrest them. They'll take over the platform and they'll monitor it, right? They'll watch what's happening. They'll collect data on people. And then eventually, you know, it becomes known that these operators, these owners of the platforms got taken down and that the platform is likely compromised, right? Typically, it's not, you know, an immediate splash page saying Operation Cookie Monster, we took over the platform, we're law enforcement, right? So it's pretty interesting when it does happen immediately versus, you know, just collecting data. I think the collecting data aspect is way more interesting, but, you know, to each their own, I guess, right? So if you work in cybersecurity or in technology, you should definitely check out the dark web and just, you know, poke around. Don't buy anything illegal, right? Don't do that. But, you know, this is one of those things where you should kind of be familiar with what it is and how it kind of operates. So that way, you know, in your company or when you start working in the industry, you have more of an understanding of it. You have an understanding of how your company might be vulnerable or if you know your company might be susceptible to attacks or things like that that are put onto the dark web right maybe monitoring it for leaked databases of credentials that's a pretty good way to, uh, a thing to do right canadian privacy commissioner launches investigation into chat gpt canadian privacy commissioner has launched an investigation into OpenAI company behind the artificial intelligence AI chatbot, ChatGPT. The Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, OPC, said on Tuesday that the case was launched in response to a complaint alleging the collection, use, and disclosure of personal information without consent. Etiquette has reached out to OpenAI and the OPC for comment. The investigation follows a series of recent moves by the federal government and members of the, of the AI research community in regulating the development and deployment of the technology. Other countries have also began to crack down on the mass adoption of ChatGPT. China, which has also banned Google, Facebook, Twitter, and other digital platforms in previous years, reportedly blocked access to ChatGPT in February. So it's no surprise that governments are starting to crack down or really investigate services like ChatGPT, right? It's no surprise. It should be no surprise to you, right? And the reason why is think about this, right? What kinds of things are people using these services for, right? What kind of data are they typing into these bots, right? These, these services, these platforms. Because ultimately, right, ChatGPT is an example, but any of these kinds of services, uh, you know, in a country like China, I mean, they're creating their own <laughs> They're creating their own service with like Alibaba and stuff. So, you know, whatever. But um, I don't think I've heard of a Canadian one yet, right? So I guess we'll see, right? But, you know, with these kinds of platforms, they get smarter based on the amount of data that they have access to, right? Like that is ultimately the goal. And that's how they are learning computers, right? Like that's how they're they're improving their answers and responses and the information that they provide based on the information they receive, right? So when you go on there and you're like, oh, tell me this, right? And it's not the right answer. And you're like, no, that's not right because of this circumstance. And then that, that system will learn based on that response. And eventually 
you know, if it gets enough corrections, then it starts to shift its behavior, shift its knowledge database. But that's kind of the idea, right? But, you know, what kinds of stuff are people putting in there, right? Are they putting in like social security numbers or like phone numbers or, you know, things like that, right? So it is of concern, right? At the, the large scale, the higher, the overarching uh, perspective of this, the 10,000 foot view, because you don't know what people are putting in there. More than likely, they're putting in stuff they shouldn't, right? In the, you know, in the privacy realm, right? So, and then it's kind of, well, okay, well, if you allow that information, you know, how are you storing it? How are you protecting that information? Is it encrypted? Are you protecting access to that? Me as another user, can I go in there and eventually elicit that information? Can I get that information out of you, right? So all these are really important things that matter. And, you know, it's not going to stop with just the Canadian government, right? All these other governments are going to be really interested in those kinds of things. So, you know, I guess likewise, if they find out that they can do that or the kinds of information that they are collecting, you know, maybe how do they leverage that as the government, right? So all these things kind of matter, right? All these things matter. They're important things to consider. So UK discloses offensive cyber capabilities principles. The UK government continues to adjust its cyber response to the growing threat posed by nation-state adversaries in line with its latest national cyber strategy, NCS, published in December 2022. After introducing the National Protective Security Authority, the NPSA, a new MI5 hosted agency tasked with tackling state-sponsored threats to UK businesses as part of its March 2023 Integrated Review Refresh, IRR, Government now decided to open up on its offensive cyber capabilities. Agency also outlined why offensive cyber strikes can be a useful tool. They said it can be sometimes provide, uh, provide the only practical means of disrupting an adversary's ability to exploit the internet and digital technology. It can be precisely targeted with specific effect and avoid the challenges of using other potentially physical destructive inventions, interventions. It can create a range of cognitive effects, such as undermining adversaries' uh, confidence in the data that they are receiving or in the ability of their information systems to function effectively that may be harder to achieve with other approaches. So, you know, from a government standpoint, right, a lot of countries are very reliant, they're heavily reliant on the internet, on these networks, right? We have things like SCADA systems, and power grids and water systems and all this stuff that is very, very important that is reliant on networks, right? So what are ways that they can respond to cyber attacks, right? Sometimes just, you know, adding more controls to a system is maybe not the most effective way, right? Sometimes hacking back might be a better way, right? That's kind of this controversial debate that we've had a lot in the last few years, and it's going to continue into the future, right? Is what is acceptable, you know, from a government standpoint, right? Typically with companies, it's not as accepted, right? But with governments, you know, they're trying to combat these attacks and go after people that are trying to attack them, right? Especially from a warfare standpoint, 
you know, you have other countries that are trying to attack other governments, right? And so that is a really important consideration. And I think, at least as far as I'm aware, this is kind of the first uh, disclosure of any kind of adversarial type of, uh, you know, principles or anything like that that's come directly from the government, right? But it's interesting, right? Do we think it's just isolated to the UK? Well, probably not, right? But it is an interesting kind of um, just stance, right? So I think that this is really interesting to follow going into the future. If you're interested in offensive security, you know, obviously there's like penetration testing firms and things like that, consulting firms. But, you know, you might also think about the government side as well, right? That's going to be where a lot of the, you know, interesting things that are not talked about, you know, are going to happen. And that's from a general standpoint, right? That's just how it is, right? That's why they have clearance levels and all this kind of stuff, because there's different things that happen there that cannot happen in a private organization. Just how it is, right? So uh, pr pretty interesting though. Here's another ChatGPT article. Researcher tricks ChatGPT into building undetectable steganography malware. Security researcher has tricked ChatGPT into building sophisticated data stealing malware that signature and behavior-based detection tools won't be able to spot and uh, spot eluding the chatbot's anti-malicious use protection. Without writing a single line of code, the researcher, who admits he has no experience developing malware, walked ChatGPT through multiple simple prompts that ultimately yielded a malware tool capable of silently searching a system for specific documents, breaking up and inserting those documents in image files and shipping them out to Google Drive. In the end, all it took was about four hours from the initial prompt into ChatGPT to having a working piece of malware with zero protection, uh, detections on virus total, says Aaron Mulgrew, solutions architect at Forcepoint and one of the authors of the malware. So again, this goes back to the whole privacy issue, right, with ChatGPT and just what can it do, right? What is it capable of doing? What is it capable of providing to you as a user? And how can you use that? How does it affect everything else, right? Will that be detected, that answer? Is that a generic answer that it knows based on something else? Or is it something that it developed that's completely brand new? You know, steganography in itself is really interesting. It's used to exfiltrate data, so take data out. And basically, just like it said in here, the idea is that you're taking data and hiding it within other data, right? So you're taking text or something from another document and you're hiding it inside of an image file. A lot of times you can hide it in other stuff too, but typically that's a pretty frequent way to hide it and try to exfiltrate it, take it off the network. But, you know, it's pretty scary when it's actually very capable of producing something like that. And it lowers the barrier to entry, right? So the technical barrier to entry is lowered if you know not if you know nothing, and you could just go on there and be like, "Hey, write me up an undetectable steganography piece of malware." You know, like yeah, I mean that's that's not great, right? That's not great for the rest of us. So 
Here's another ChatGPT article. Samsung reportedly leaked its own secrets through ChatGPT. Less than three weeks after Samsung lifted a ban on employees using ChatGPT, the Chable has reportedly leaked its own secrets at least three times, including sensitive in-development semiconductor information. The ban was originally intended to protect company data, was lifted on March 11th to enhance productivity, keep staff engaged, and the world's latest coolest tech tools with the world's latest uh, cool tech tools. According to a Korean local media report, those now leaked secrets include equipment measurement and yield data from the conglomerate's device solution and semiconductor business unit. One employee told the local outlet they copied all the problematic source code of a semiconductor database download program, entered it into ChatGPT, and inquired about a solution. Another uploaded program data designed to identify defective equipment and a third uploaded records of a meeting in an attempt to auto-generate minutes. Oh boy. <laughs> so, yeah. So from an, an employer standpoint, how do you prevent your employees from doing this, right? What kind of policies and procedures do you have in place, right? This goes back to where can data be stored, right? So. Can I take data off the company network, store it directly onto my personal computer? Because then you can't control really anything. You know, if it's encrypted, that's a good step at least. But you need to protect that data, obviously, right? I would say probably on a lot of work computers, you know, it's probably at this point smarter to block ChatGPT completely. <laughs> you know, obviously it has benefits, but... I don't think that you should just be able to completely copy and paste into chat GPT from your work computer. That's probably in general a bad idea, right? And then another thing, another issue, another concern. Okay, so I've uploaded this data into chat GPT. Again, how are you storing that data? Is it encrypted? Who can access that data? Can somebody else get that information out? by just asking it some questions, right? There's just, there's so many issues right now around this, especially in a work capacity, that it's just, it's, it's probably gonna hurt some companies, right? It just is. I don't know how else to, uh, I don't know how else to explain it, right? Many workers willing to take pay cut to work remotely survey finds. Americans have grown uh, so fond of working from home that many are willing to sacrifice pay for the privilege of skipping the office. So found a recent survey by recruiting firm Robert Half, which is a te uh, technical recruiting firm here in the United States, and they do a lot of placements for technical workers, which polled thousands of US employees and hiring managers about their attitudes towards remote work. Some workers said they're willing to take a pay cut with an average reduction of 18% to remain fully remote. Paul McDonald, a Robert Half senior executive director told CBS News. Overall, roughly one in three workers who go to the office at least one day a week said that they're willing to earn less for the opportunity to work remotely. Yet, those preferences are running smack into a push by employers to get employees back to the office. A recent resume builder survey found that nine out of 10, uh, nine out of 10 companies will require employees to go back to the office in 2023. So, if you're brand new to the industry, I know this might seem weird to you or different, right? Like if you've come into the workforce in the last year, 
let's say in 2022, you might only know remote workforce, right? Like that's a thing. Is that normal? You know, going back in 2019, let's say. Well, no, because a lot of companies had people on site. Your Apples and your Googles of the world, people were working on site, right? Like not all of them were working remote, like it might be easy to think. You know, and especially if you're, if you came into the workforce in that period, over the COVID period, right, the pandemic period, then it just might feel normal, right? Like you might feel like, well, my employer's trying to force me back going, that's crazy, that's not normal. Well, it was normal, right, before. And a lot of companies are kind of shifting back to that. They're still trying to figure out, you know, who can be remote. Some company cultures are not going to let you work remote. That's just how it is. Even throughout the pandemic, some companies were not letting people work remote or they were letting them do like a day a week, right? And maybe they're clawing that back. Maybe you were able to work a couple days a week and then they're clawing that back, right? It's just, I hate to break it to you, but in a lot of cases, remote work was just not the norm. And is it nice? Absolutely, right? You have the ability to work from home and you like it, I would definitely do it, right? Like there's so many advantages from an employee standpoint and an employer standpoint to working remotely. But it's just not gonna be every company, right? That's important to you and your company doesn't support that, it's not important to them, well then go to another company. Change jobs, right? Just how it is, right? You've gotta find the employer that's going to support the things that are important to you and have those same kind of ideals, right? Those same kind of uh, uh, principles as far as their employees and their workforce. So, yeah, but it is interesting to see so many companies saying that they're gonna force people back, right? Like that's, you know, it'll be interesting to see kind of that backlash. So, So that's going to wrap it up for this week. That's going to be the last article we're going to cover. Again, this was your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of May 2nd, 2023 through May, uh, sorry, April 2nd, 2023 through April 8th, 2023. We're not quite in May yet. I'm your host, John Good. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Let me know if you enjoy the content, if you want to see anything else. If you're listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Also check out the description because there is a link to the show notes so you can check out the articles that we talked about as well as some other articles that we didn't have time for. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for the week. I want to thank you for joining me and I'll see you next time.